Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Frank Capello. And I'm Rivka Rivera. Riv, Happy New Year. Happy we did it. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We made it to 2024. How was your break? How was your holiday? It was really good. I go into detail on our premium episode. That's right, we did. All of the deep cleaning lots of donating of things. There's nothing left in my apartment. And how just happy I was to clear house of 2023. How about you? My break was great. Went down to Jersey for a few days over Christmas, hung out with the family. Uh, Something funny did happen. I was staying at my dad's house and my dad was like, you know, I've been uh, listening to your podcast. And I was like, do you really? Oh, wow. I Yeah, I'd sent it to him when we first started, but I didn't know that he was regularly listening. And he said, you know, I listened uh, one episode. You said that I was a uh, you said that I was a capitalist exploiting, <laughs> exploiting my employees. What was that? And I was like, I was like, yeah, well, we know we talk about capitalism and the way that the way that it works. But that was mostly a joke. You know, you're a small business owner. You're not like ruining people's lives. And he's like, it didn't sound like a joke. I was like, it was a joke. So we had to we had to like hash it out. I understood it as a joke, for the record. I know you did. I just want to say for the record and for my dad that it was, in fact, a joke. And I felt bad for a couple of days because I was like, oh, shit, I don't want my dad to feel like I'm making fun of him or, make, you know, or like mm-hmm. joking at his expense. But then I was like, wait, the only time that he's told me that he has listened to my podcast was when he got brought up and he was upset about it. <laughs> Hasn't called me once to be like, I thought you did a really good job on this one episode. Well, did he say anything else? Did he... Did he like it? No, that was it. His Solid. only note was like, I heard that thing you said about me and I didn't like it. Wow, I've never wanted to please anyone more now. <laughs> <laughs> Every episode from now on will be directed towards one person and I will be trying my very best to be impressive. Good. That makes one of us. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Dad. I love you so much. Thank you for listening. Um, we had one thing we wanted to talk about today before we get into our conversation about Alien. It's a new year and there are new reports coming out about the entertainment industry. And there was one that was just conducted by USC's Annenberg's Inclusion Initiative. And we're going to be pulling from a Variety article written by Brent Lang, who reported on this. So what this report found was that the entertainment industry's pledges around 2020, around you know summer 2020, after George Floyd's murder and all of the uprisings at that time, Hollywood had pledged, you know, we're going to be more inclusive. We're going to be more diverse. We're going to hire more women and people of color. And what this new report has found is that, whoops, they didn't do that very much. So this report found that a total of 116 directors were attached to the top 100 grossing films of 2023, but just 14 of them, or 12.1%, were directed by women. Slight improvement from 9% in 2022, uh, but not a major improvement from 2018 when it was only 4.5%. Of those numbers, only four were women of color, which is only accounts for 3.4%. And then the study also found that only 26 directors, or 22.4% of those top 100 grossing movies, uh, were from non-white directors. So there's still very small percentage of the total of directing jobs going to basically not white men. But Frank, what about Barbie? 
Oh, that's right. And that, by the way, is a joke, ladies and gentlemen and people. (laughs) (laughs) The study did note that, yes, Barbie is the highest grossing film of 2023. It's the highest grossing film ever directed by a female. But even still, it doesn't change the the broader makeup of who these jobs are going to. Also, the study's authors note that because they're measuring against the 100 top grossing films, you know, this is not, not skewed data, but it's like it's it's specific data, you know, because some films released towards the end of 2023 don't have enough time to gross enough money to be included on that list. And this and this list also doesn't capture the women and people of color working as directors on lower earning films or on streaming services. How do you are you surprised by this that Hollywood said it was going to be better and then wasn't shocked? You had sent me over the headline on Instagram and the headline reads, major studios pledges to hire more female filmmakers and people of color were performative, studies find. Like, I thought it was an Onion article. It sounds like an Onion headline. Like, sure. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Like, performative? You don't say. You mean when they were, like, telling us, you know, women matter, black, like, female empowerment, and they give us the special, like, you know when they would give you, like, the special, I'm going to say, columns of movies? You know, when you go on your, like, Apple TV, the categories. Oh, oh, oh the categories. Curation. The, curation, the genres. Yeah, genre yeah, 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 curation. Yeah. And they'll do, like, female movie, you know. But, and you're like, okay, why don't you just, like, fucking hire? Like, that's performative as fuck. So it gives you the impression that they're honoring all this. I mean, it's totally, mm-hmm. yeah. So, no, not surprised. How about you? Were you just like so surprised taking to the? T- I <laughs> I was. Imagine you're like I was really surprised. I was really surprised. I thought Hollywood had fixed everything. No, I was not surprised whatsoever. Especially because this is a list about you know like studio directors mm-hmm. for big budget studio feature films, which. I think are still regarded in Hollywood as sort of like the most, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's on like the highest pedestal. Like, like They make the like, most. They, they get the most budget, right? Not necessarily the most budget, but they have the most prestige. You know, mm-hmm. like, like film is still regarded higher than television, you know? So like we're specifically mm-hmm. measuring like studio feature directors. And the studio system is still kind of the most like old school Hollywood part of Hollywood, you know, like I would imagine Paramount Pictures is like still much more of like a, you know, a boys club than let's say like Hulu or something like that. So Mm. this doesn't surprise me that much. If we had had time, I would have really wanted to go into like, who are the studio heads? Who are like the top executives at each studio? Who are the like the CEOs of the parent companies of those studios, you know, like how many of those people are white men? Like, because I I would imagine still the bulk percentage of it. So like these changes, in my opinion, have to happen both internally and externally. And it has to happen within the studios themselves and the and the the artists that they choose to work with. So it's it's not surprising to me that there actually hasn't been as much progress as we would have hoped. But yeah, it's uh, it feels kind of like part and parcel to the way that Hollywood does do stuff, which is like, we're going to make a big show about it, but then we're not going to really mm-hmm. institute any like real material changes. Which is really smart, because I will say it doesn't necessarily, first of all, you're not seeing the directors, right? And even with actors, the statistics are not, it's not like that much more 
riveting or like encouraging. Like mm-hmm. it's still a lot of white actors, not a lot, not as much representation as you would imagine. But like again, the way things are marketed, who they're marketed to, like all of that, it's like smart. Like literally, I was making a joke, but it's true. I think because of like the the because of Barbie, like I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people would be like, if you did like a man on the street, how many films do you think are made by women? They'd be like, well, Barbie, so a hundred percent, you know, because it was sure, so sure. it took up such a massive amount of marketing space and headspace, and you were talking about Greta Gerwig, Greta Gerwig, female director, female director. It's one freaking person, but like that's kind of also intentional pretty smart yeah as we're talking about this i'm realizing that like hollywood is very much like the democratic party you know a (laughs) lot of a lot of virtue signaling we're on the side of marginalized communities and we are going to help them but we never will but still vote for us please hold on to your horses ladies and gentlemen it's 20 and people i don't know i'm saying ladies and gentlemen and i've just been aware of how binary a term that is so catching myself on that and people because 2024 as my mom said, it's going to be a bumpy year. Yeah, it's our last year on Earth. We have to, to soak up every second <laughs> oh, of Jesus it. Jesus Christ. All right, we should get our conversation today. But before we do, just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show. You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Joe Mayall to talk about Alien. Today, we have with us Joe Mayall. Joe is a writer, author, and labor activist based in Denver. He's written for Jacobin, The Progressive Magazine, Balls and Strikes, and elsewhere. And he's currently working on a book detailing the theory and practice of economic democracy. All his work can be found at joewrote.com, great website title, a blog dedicated to exploring life through a leftist lens. Welcome, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. You reached out to us, actually, and said you really wanted to talk about Alien, which I'm excited for this conversation because I think it's always great when someone has a really passionate point of view on a film. Yeah. Um, Alien is my all-time favorite movie, and I was kind of just wow. looking for other people to uh, geek out about it with me. So uh, thanks for having oh, me. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Before we get to our movie convo, I'm curious... A blog dedicated to exploring life through a leftist lens. Tell us more, a little bit more about your blog and what you write about. Yeah, so I started writing just kind of about leftist economics. Like I think a lot of people who might be sympathetic to socialists or anti-capitalist beliefs have very basic questions about like how would it work, right? Like what does my life look like in a post-capitalist society? And so I started writing just like, okay, like here's how a democratic workplace can work, here's how nationalized industry can work, stuff like that. Um, And a long time, it kind of changed a little bit. I started just offering my opinion about things such as alien, movies, TV shows. 
And so based on reader feedback, they're like, yeah, we kind of, we like the original like economic stuff, but we also kind of like this uh, cultural <laughs> entertainment stuff. And I was like, all right, fine. Uh, you guys twisted my arm. I guess I'll, I'll give you all my, all my thoughts on 1970s horror movies. So it's kind of just sort of like a encapsulation of uh, my leftist mind, if that makes sense, in the way I see the world. And is is the book that you're working on right now sort of like the accumulation of the, the work you've been doing on your blog and is just sort of like going to be the, the long form version? Very much so, yeah. So a lot of the stuff that I've talked about on my blog, you know, if it's like a one-off article of like, okay, here's how, you know, you get coffee in a socialist society or something like that. Um, like, how does that fit the big picture, right? Like, why are we inclined towards democracy, where did democracy come from, and how can we spread it from, well, one, how can we expand it in the political sphere so that it's not just like the watered version, watered down version we have in the United States, but also bring it into our workplaces, let it be the mechanism we control, the distribution of resources, stuff like that. In, in writing like about uh, just how these systems could exist in a, you know, in a post-capitalist world, what is like the biggest misconception about socialism or communism or a post-capitalist economic framework that you regularly encounter? For sure. By far and away, the biggest one is that capitalism is markets and socialism is like government tells you what to do. One of the most popular pieces I've written is explaining how in the American economy, we have tons of central planning, but it's actually like capitalist central planning. So for example, the best one I can think of is the power grid, right? Like when you get power to your house, your business, whatever it may be, you don't act through the market. Like you're not really like weighing different options and purchasing the one that makes sense for you. Generally, you move into a home or an apartment in which the electricity grid has been centrally planned by the local or state government. But there is also a capitalist com company that is taking a profit from that. And then when you put it in that terms, people kind of start to realize like, oh, okay, so maybe everything I've been told about the free market isn't actually true, right? Because it's not really your choice what power company you have. Like you're pretty much told what you have and you can either choose to pay uh, prices to that company or you can live in the dark. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about this movie because there's not a lot of genre movies that are a more straightforward indictment of... <laughs> our economic system and the way that corporations abuse their workers than the movie we're going to talk about today, which is uh, Ridley Scott's Alien, released on May 25th, 1979, directed, as I said, by Ridley Scott, written by Dan O'Bannon. The story was developed by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Rushett, starring Sigourney Weaver as Ellen Ripley, Tom Skerritt as Dallas, Veronica Cartwright as Lambert, Harry Dean Stanton as Brett, Yafet Kodo as Parker, John Hurt as Kane, and Ian Holm as Ash. The budget for this film was $11 million, and it grossed $184.7 million. was a massive, massive hit. Uh, and the synopsis, if you've never seen this movie or haven't seen it in a while, aboard the Nostromo, a commercial spaceship, the crew faces a nightmare when they respond to a distress signal on an alien moon and encounter a lethal alien creature. After the alien boards their ship and begins a deadly hunt through its corridors, Ellen Ripley, the Warren officer, discovers that their bosses at the Wayland Yatani Corporation have sent the Nostromo's crew to capture the creature with their lives deemed expendable. Ripley takes charge, battling the alien in a tense showdown, and emerges the sole survivor. 
The film, renowned for its blend of sci-fi and horror, is highlighted by Sigourney Weaver's iconic performance as the formidable Ripley. And just some historical context for this year we like to give before we dive into our conversation, Joe. The year, as we mentioned, is 1979. A movie ticket costs $2.57. A dozen eggs cost 85 cents. And you can buy a 12-ounce can of Spam for $1.09. Our president is Jimmy Carter, and Margaret Thatcher just became the first female prime minister of the UK. The Deer Hunter won an Oscar for Best Picture at the 51st Academy Awards. The most serious nuclear power plant accident in American history occurred at Three Mile Island in South Central Pennsylvania. McDonald's introduces the Happy Meal for Kids. Pittsburgh Pirates (laughs) won the World Series. And in music, we're listening to songs like My Sharona by The Knack. I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor and YMCA by The Village People. This movie feels like the beginning of the 80s. Is it, it feel like it it feel like it really was just like, hey, this is what the 80s is about to be like for everyone, not only uh thematically but aesthetically as well. So, Joe, the first thing we like to start this conversation with is we ask our guest, why did you choose this movie for us to talk about? on this podcast. Yeah, so I I love this movie for two reasons. One, I I think it's a great sci-fi movie. Um, I don't think science fiction, modern science fiction, looks the same without it. And two, I view this movie as a giant allegory for the labor movement. Specifically, like as you mentioned, you know, it's right at the end of the 1970s. I take this as as the writing on the wall for American workers about what is going to happen if the deregulation that was happening during the 70s just continues into the future unchecked. So, yeah, like if you think of if you ever looked at um, statistics about union rates and labor protections, they really start to fall off in the 70s. And then Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan more aggressively really just nail in the coffin for American unions. And so I see this as pretty much everything about it is, you know, it's very working class, right? Unlike Star Wars or Star Trek, it's not shiny spaceships and people in sleek spacesuits. It's working class Americans on what is essentially like a, I guess they're in the 22nd century, a 22nd century like oil rig or blue collar environment. And the way I see it is this is Dan O'Bannon's warning of like, look, if we go to space without labor protections, we're going to be forced to (laughs) go explore untapped planets. There's going to be all these crazy clauses in our contracts. Um, I think the first conversation between the characters in the movie is about, correct me if I'm wrong, their names are Harper and Brett, two engineers, are arguing about their shares because they're only getting half shares while everyone else, the captain, is getting full shares. Um, And so through that lens, it's really just in my mind like it kind of predicts a lot of the problems we're facing now and will continue to face in the future if people follow Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos into space, which is a terrible idea, and I would suggest people do not do, but I can't stop you. Sorry, I already bought my Blue Origin ticket. <laughs> Black Friday discount. I'm a billionaire. No refunds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow, Joe, absolutely. I This was my first time seeing this movie. Nice. So, yeah. First of all, it was it's such a good film i can't believe i well i can believe i i can believe it knowing me that i missed it sci-fi is not always my jam but um this was just phenomenal incredible filmmaking just a beautiful film 
the shots, the storytelling, it's it was phenomenal. And I didn't expect to be so scared for all of the reasons that you just laid out. It was really chilling. And it really is a horror movie about capitalism more than it is about, I mean, that was the scarier part than the actual alien. Although the alien was pretty scary at the end. But I, I think what it did so well was it, to me, it was at least there was like a clarity that the intention was the ship and the structure and the corporation and the corporate mindset and profit over people. Like those were all the really, really scared. That was the enemy at the end of the film. That's who Ripley is fighting off. And the relationship between Ripley and the alien is really a result of all of that. And I think they made that very clear just from the beginning, even in the nat- like the organic matter that was used to make up the the alien's egg, which was so gross and also kind of cute. And I don't know, even in that moment, you're just like, what is this? What what is this white man doing messing with this <laughs> this mm-hmm. egg? Like leave that egg alone. Leave like leave nature be. And you just that was important. That was the the, the alien wasn't this evil creature just out to get man because there's no there was no reason for it. So that clarity and articulation was important. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, one of the things I'm really fascinated about in this movie is in a lot of sci-fi before it and a lot of sci-fi after it. Aliens are like, you know, they have spaceships, they're traveling a lot, they're kind Mm. of intelligent. And this one's really just an animal, right? Like, I know um, Dan O'Bannon pitched this movie to 20th Century Fox as Jaws in Space, which it's kind of sets the the tone of what he's thinking. Like, it's just a predator. Yeah, it doesn't know where it is. It's just like, oh, my jobs are to reproduce, which is the most disgusting reproductive cycle I've ever seen in my life. Really? I thought it was kind of hot. <laughs> yeah, when he latched onto that guy's face. I was I was like, I would buy that face mask, to be honest. Level, that's 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 intense intimacy. But it, it's <laughs> like, you know, it's just it's like you said, Riv, it's nature doing nature, right? And then humans come in the way, and as has been the story of humanity ever since capitalism was invented. But when a capitalist sees nature, they're like, how can I monetize that? And I yes. don't care how many people have to die for me to increase my profits by a single cent or whatever currency they're using in this year. Yes. the One of the main thoughts that I had in rewatching this was the profit motive will kill us all. And I I mean, I, I think that's true. I think that uh, I mean, I think we're witnessing right now with uh, the way that our, you know, the livable climate is collapsing all just for the sake of profit. Because, like, obviously there have been times throughout history, the, the history of capitalism, like the Gilded Age or, or or now, whatever, where there's just been just such rampant abuse of corporate power. And obviously that's all here in this film. But I love that you contextualize it specifically at the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s with, like, like you're saying, sort of the the fall of the, you know, the mid-century American labor movement and all of the deregulation that was happening uh, at the end of the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, I thought I thought that's completely spot on. And yeah, this is just, it's so, it's so relatable and it's a, such a brilliant screenwriting trick in that like, you know, we're, we're putting these characters into a completely unrelatable situation for the audience, which is space travel, being in the future. But it's so relatable that this is just a story about people just doing a fucking job. And like they like you, you're right. They feel like workers and the ship feels like 
it feels like their workplace. Like it's not shiny, it's not sleek, it is steamy, it is wet, it is metallic, it is grimy. Like the, like this is a mining vessel and they feel like miners. They're smoking in space. Yes. Hell yes. yeah. Hell I, yeah. I wrote that down. I was like, I don't, I, I, I don't know how I'd find this out, but I was like, I'm very curious if there's been like a 1970s sci-fi movie where people are smoking. Cause I don't really remember it in Star Wars. I don't think it was in Star Trek. It felt like a very purposeful choice. There's definitely some aliens at the Mos Eisley Cafe that are, you know, smoking some kind of a pipe, but like not like no one's like fucking ripping Marlboros on the Millennium yeah, Falcon. They're you know ripping I mean? butts <laughs> and they look good doing it. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting you mentioned that, Frank, because one of my pet theories about why this movie is so popular is like, you know, I think a lot of people went to see Star Wars because it was like, it's cool. There's space wizards and like, lasers and stuff like that but this movie just feels relatable right like mm -hmm. as you said no one can relate to really going to or very few people can relate to going to space but everyone can relate to being put in a dangerous situation by their boss or being asked to do something at work they don't want to do and having the thought in their head of like i can either take this risk or i can suffer the risk of losing my income which in our society is certain death, right? If you don't have income, you can't afford housing, you can't eat. That's just the reality we live in. And that really, I think, drew the audience in and attached them to the characters and made it much more impactful, their struggles, than just someone like Luke Skywalker or something like that. Um, not to hate on Star Wars, I'm a big fan, but I think this movie is a lot more the average audience in both 1979 and 2023 can feel what the characters are being put through. And that makes mm. their journey so much more engrossing. Yeah, I think I, I totally agree. And what I was really blown away with was how detailed the class consciousness of the film was. Because it, it could have stopped at, okay, working class, corporation, we get it. This is protagonist, antagonist. But there was so much... It had... I felt it had a racial consciousness as well that um, that and also a consciousness of the different levels inside of corporate capitalism. So the managerial class, right, was very prominent and represented to me by Lambert, who was played by Veronica Cartwright. And then you had Harry Dean Stanton and Yafat Koto playing Brett and Parker, who were the worker, the engineers working below. And it makes a point from the top of the film that they're they're really like, we're the ones doing the labor <laughs> on the ship and we're not getting paid as much as the managerial class, which also includes Ripley and Captain Dallas and Kane. And that dynamic only, it's pretty amazing that it finds a way to strengthen it and actually play out in the depths of these characters. So when... And I think there's a lot to be learned from how they face the quote-unquote alien, and I think we can learn a lot from it. So when they, when Parker and Lambert eventually come across an alien face-to-face -face in the in the ship, I read into it, and I'm curious you had a, if you had a different reading of this, that Lambert's response to was it like shock and awe and she does she freezes in the face of this both times actually she freezes in the face of first recognizing that ash in that great scene where they discover that ash is a robot and has been on the side of the company and mothership the whole time she's frozen and that's sort of the, the beginning of her sort of not being able to comprehend 
this betrayal. And I think that's so much like that represents this sort of neoliberal managerial class of when you really believe in the system working a certain way, your response when it turns is to just freeze in the face of it, which is actually quite dangerous. And in contrast, Parker, who from the top we've been seeing is quite critical and aware of these class dynamics, doesn't freeze. Like Parker is the one to pick up the gun and, you know, burn the the rest of the material off of like the body of Ash and then Parker. And then later when they go, when the alien's coming towards them, Lambert freezes again and Parker is able to move. And I think that is deeply related to that class consciousness that Parker has, where there is not a shock there that Parker has to get over. It's not as there's maybe a shock, but it's not a surprise that this is the situation that they were sold out by their corporation because he was aware of the oppression and exploitation from the top of the film. And I think the lesson here to learn is like why it is so important the role of radicalizing these neoliberal managerial classes so that when shit really hits the fan, as we talked about, like when the aliens really do come or like the material results of these things come to fruition, we don't have a whole group of people who are frozen and unable to act in the face of it because it's so shocking. We have a class of Parkers who are able to pick up the gun and move and, like, do what needs to be done. I mean, Ripley, I think, has the advantage of sort of distance of watching, but even Ripley sort of has that. Ripley, I think you can say maybe get is the one that gets radicalized throughout the film. But, yeah, that was – I just thought that moment was, like, such a ta- – so important and I think probably intentional, but I'm curious your thoughts about that scene. Yeah, I um, – to be honest, I did not make that connection between Parker, you know, not being, like, frozen in awe um, while the, the the characters that were more um, willing to believe that the company was on their side or acting in their interest were frozen. I But hearing you say that, I think that's super smart and well on. I also – don't really think it's a coincidence that Parker is the sole black character in this movie. Right. I think that is a very yeah. deliberate choice, especially in 1979, that he, with the exception of Ripley, is the only other character who is taking action, um, willing to take this this system head on. He kills Bull or he kills Ash, the the android character, and tries to fight the alien. And I think that was a really deliberate choice by the filmmakers and the casting to show that, you know, hey, there, there is this this class uh, issue at play, but there's also a subtext here of, um, you know, as we all know, like uh, racial issues definitely uh, overlap with uh, class issues and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I super agree with your, with your analysis that, um, you know, oh, yeah, this makes sense. The company is trying to get us killed for profit. And um, everyone else is a little like, no, they would never do that. And when they're confronted with that face-to-face, they freeze. It reminds me a lot of hearing you talk. The first thing that came to mind was, I remember hearing that when Roe v. Wade got overturned, there were a lot of law professors who had, for decades and decades, taught their students that, you know, the Supreme Court is apolitical. It's just doing this, like, uh, interpretive Mm. bullshit. And then when they were confronted with the fact like, oh, no, this was a century-long project pretty much by the Republican Party to corrupt these institutions, they couldn't comprehend it. And they just didn't know how to explain it to their students, didn't know how to explain it to to anyone, and they're the supposed experts. 
that was the first thing that came to mind. So I, I think you're spot on there. Yeah, and it's it's that same dynamic when like after in 2016 after Trump was elected, and the only the only explanation that liberals neoliberals could come up with was like. Uh, it was uh, Susan Sarandon's fault. Uh, like, oh, it's just uh, it's just that uh, half of the country is completely racist. And, and not having the scope or the willingness to widen their perspective in a way that would allow them to analyze the underlying, yeah, systemic issues. Rib, I love that read on Lambert. That's something I would not have picked up on. And but I, and I also agree. I think like the, I think the intentionality of Parker being the only black character is it must be there. I mean, like we said from the jump, he's the first one that's like, why am I not getting paid as much as everybody else? Uh, as soon as they get the distress beacon and they have the conversation about like, are we going to go to the, see this distress beacon or are we going to just like go on home? He's like, let's fucking go home. Like, what are we even talking about here? And, and they, and like you're saying, Joe, they threaten him by, if I think it's maybe Dallas or someone says to him, like, Look, this is in your contract, and if you don't go along with this, you're gonna lose your shares. So you know he's being told like your livelihood, all of the work that you've put into this, and keep in mind like they're on this ship for like years because they're going into deep space. So they're like, hey, the last like four or five years you've spent on this ship, like you know putting together whatever this nest egg is gonna be. Sorry, that's not. It's just we're gonna take it away from you if you don't agree to workplace endangerment. And yeah, that's, I think, something that everyone has experienced at one point or another. Yeah, the the um, it, it's fascinating how much they talk about contracts because you would think like sci-fi horror movie, paperwork is not going to be a big plot device in it, but it really is. And it's the mm -hmm. motivation for a lot of these characters. And unlike other movies where they kind of come up with some like, you know, flimsy motivation or reason why the characters have to go down to a creepy planet that any normal person would just fly by and be like, I'm not, I'm not touching that. It really, you, you understand why they have to do it. And they're like, oh, like they have to go and check this thing out or they're going to starve when they get back to Earth. And Dallas has a, a great line that I think really encapsulates this where it's either in that conversation you were talking about, Frank, or the next one where they're discussing how Ash became to be the science officer, but he says, like, following the contracts is standard procedure. And Ripley says, since when? And Dallas replies, standard procedure is whatever the hell the company tells you to do. And I think that is a perfect summary of what these characters are in, what the typical American finds themselves in every day, you know, how many people have been at work and they're told to do something. And it's like, that's actually not my job. I wasn't hired to do that, whatever it may be. And then they're told, like, well, you can either do it or you can be fired. And those are your options. And mm -hmm. it just comes back to that relatability where, you know, one thing I stumbled across in research for this was that Dan O'Bannon is the man who, who wrote it, is the son of a carpenter. And it really, like, wow. you know, one of the most heavily unionized uh, industries, I would say, it really comes across like, oh, he recognizes what's at play here. You know, he, he gets what motivates people, what the forces that control them, that tell them what to do. He understands it. And I think just all, any other movie, conversation about paperwork, uh, who filed what report, clauses, anyone would roll their eyes at it. It works in Alien because it's it's realistic and it's a true motivating factor. You do what you told or, you're, or you get fucked. That's the only way around it. And I have to imagine just, you know, thinking about this being pitched as like the, the sci-fi Jaws in the sky... Big, it's 
probably was, you know, being pitched as like, this can be a big blockbuster hit, but this is the 70s. And I think you feel so much of how in the indie film was kind of still king. You know, it's falling off. This is like the end of an era for sure. But you can sense that in in the dialogue, in the fact that there's so much detail um, in this film. And I don't know, it's hard to, I'm trying to think about films where you might, I mean, maybe Jordan Peele, can get it done in some ways, although I fear less and less, but it really is important to watch for that as well. It also made me think of a line where in that scene, which I also want to talk about when Ash is discovered to be an android by Ripley, but Ash as the android uh, says part of their, part of what they want, like the corporation idolizes this, um, alien species for their because they're in their reason it's a perfect organism unclouded by delusions of morality which is another great way to reveal what profit is after that there's no moral basis and it's actually like the aim is to sort of get to this place of no morality it makes me think of the it makes me fear that the people after ai truly actually it's not only don't care that there's not a moral basis for like the potential of artificial intelligence, it's that they actually seek that. <laughs> terrifying. You're right. It is terrifying. Um, earlier, you asked me like what I, I wrote about in my blog and what um, misconceptions people have. And an early, uh, one that I get all the time is explaining to people what a fiduciary duty is. Like stockholders in a company have a fiduciary duty to maximize the profit of their stockholders, which means it is... American law that they have to put morality aside and do what will ever maximize profit. And if they don't do that, they can be sued and they can be found in breach of contract. And that is kind of the core basis of our system, right? There is no room for morality. And every once in a while, a company will slip it into a mission statement that they put on Facebook or something. <laughs> but we all know that's bullshit, right? Their, their only goal is to increase profit. And if they have to kill an entire spaceship full of people or risk, uh, I guess, this alien getting back to Earth where it would probably kill a lot more people, then that is not only what they're going to do, but I'm assuming that American law has, has followed these people into space. They are legally <laughs> obligated <laughs> to do it. Um, and it is terrifying. There's, there's no other word for it. I think you're right, Riff. Joe, can I ask you, when did the fiduciary responsibility become law? Or has it always been law and then it's only been in like the last several decades that it's been warped into this sort of like profit at all costs, like the Milton Friedman doctrine of like shareholder primacy? Like, is, this, is fiduciary responsibility something that has always existed or is this a new legal concept? Ooh, I could not tell you if it's always existed. Um, yeah, I can't say. The one thing I, I will say is I think at different points of capitalism, there was space for a little bit more better treatment of workers in the sense that after the New Deal, capitalists kind of respected the union rights for 20, 30 years or so until we got to this, until this age of the 70s, 80s, in which they went scorched earth on it. And my thoughts on that is that capitalism needs to expand, right? Like no... CEO, president of company, whoever can just say to stockholders like, all right, we've got a good profit. We're just going to hold it there. We're good for now, right? <laughs> They'll be run out in a second. Enough is enough, right, guys? Yeah, right? Like no one's ever been in the boardroom like, don't we, don't we have enough? Come on, let's all chill. Nothing to talk about here. Yeah, we can all call it a day. Go home at lunch, right? Never happened once. And so 
in prior times, capitalism could expand primarily through colonization, right? Going, finding new lands, new markets, et cetera. And up until probably like 80s, 70s, um, there was new avenues that capital could expand to. And then it kind of hit its limits when it ran up against like the Cold War bloc and, you know, forces that were hostile to, to capital. They didn't allow it in. They, they fought it, literal wars, um, whatever it may be. And so then capital started to look inwards and it looked at its own workers and it saw potential profit there by decreasing wages, stagnating wages, wow. those sorts of things. I think nowadays what we're seeing is not only more of that, but capital is really trying to expand by grabbing our attention share, right? You log on every new social media platform is just trying mm -hmm. to swallow up as many hours of your day as it can get, uh, thinking of TikTok in particular. And one thing that's really fascinating to me about space is I think it will provide capital this opportunity to go and expand into new new lands once again, right? If Elon Musk isn't fascinated with Mars because he thinks it's cool, he is probably looking at it like there's probably an entire planet of gold somewhere out there, and that will make me a lot of money. And so, Frank, I'm sorry, I know I just took your question in one entirely different direction. <laughs> um, I can't tell it to get back to your original question. I can't tell you when the fiduciary duty started. But I do feel like it really got expanded in this time period that we're talking about between when this movie was made and now where people were held to that standard, CEOs, whatever, and said, I have to increase profits. The best way I can do that is by taking away health care from my workers' children. That's my take on it. No, I think you're no, that was a Joe. That was a great answer. Thank you so much. No, but you're right. I like there. There was an ideological change led by some of the, the largest capitalists of the time you know, throughout the 70s and 80s where, you know, whatever whatever tiny shred of altruism or, or, or like you're saying, care for their workers, whatever shred of that existed, there was a conscious choice. And you can look to, you can look at documents like the Powell memo, or you can look to documents like, like Milton Friedman's writing. And th there was several prominent thinkers at that time who made the choice to be like, no, 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 no. Stop caring about literally anything else other than fucking profit and enriching your shareholders. That is it. And that is a conscious choice that economists and writers made during that time that is now completely polluted our entire economic landscape. So it's, it's, it's important to point out for people. Cause I think, you know, I think a lot of people, especially young people today are like, man, why is it so shitty now? And it's like, it, it's, you, you can kind of look back and be like, it's really the fault of pretty much like three or four guys <laughs> in like, the, in like the, in the seventies at some point. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Friedman, like the, the Friedman doctrine, right? The, the moral responsibility of a corporation is to make as much profit as possible. And you know, I, I as much as I as I'll complain about capitalists and their ideology, one thing I'll say is I think that they actually believe their own hype. Like I think there are people in very powerful economic positions in our country and throughout our world who believe that, who believe that increasing the profits of Amazon is the best thing that can happen to humanity. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true, right? You have to kind of delude yourself to believe that that somehow chopping down the Amazon rainforest will be better for humanity if you can monetize those trees somehow. But I, I think you're I think you're spot on. And I think this movie really kind of tries to to shove that into our faces on a on a big screen and be like, this is what it looks like if we just keep expanding profit. You guys yeah. want this? Like there's an off ramp. I feel like Captain Dallas would represent that. Sort of has that where you're like, you look like you're buying into this, you know. This shit where maybe more of like um, 
Ripley and Parker are more going with the flow, you know, have it just haven't really had time maybe to question or just not questioning it. I feel like Dallas is is down and believes he's Captain America. <laughs> and then it's critical that um, Dallas is the one that that also that scene early on, which I love how they built it up because I want to talk about Ripley more because there's so much to discuss about the sex politics and just just yeah to talk about the sex politics in her character but that important scene where she there they've been out and she's like no we're not gonna i mean it's common sense i was like screaming at the screen i'm like no she's not gonna let you in and everyone is second guessing you know then we later learn sure ash is an android but you feel all the all the men in charge second guessing her very basic like clearly the call is we don't break the quarantine protocol we don't let People yeah. who just went and interacted with this guy's got a fucking space squid <laughs> stuck to his face. Yeah. He's not coming on the ship. So sorry. I was surprised. It's so interesting you you mentioned that Rib, because I was like, even if there wasn't a protocol, I wouldn't let that guy on the ship. And she's like a hundred percent in the right. And then I'm like, oh, so there's common sense, and there's also a pro- like someone wrote down somewhere like. We don't let you on the ship if you have an, atta- an alien attached to your body. Very basic, like common sense thing yeah and it was just like oh she's 100 percent right and everybody's treating her like she's crazy and they don't hit it over the head and this is the acting this is the directing but it's there where you're like if that was a dude you know they would listen differently like it's always there where you're like they're just always kind of rolling their eyes and not listening and i just love her performance and where that character's arc goes because she when she finally when dallas is finally gone and she's in charge she doesn't i think it would be so easy to play it like tame and you know corporate class mm. okay now i'm in charge and i and she just screams at them well deserved like this is what you're gonna fucking do and is allowed to have all of the expressiveness that we often see male characters allowed and not women and i thought that was really radical and important it's interesting because we've actually covered sigourney weaver Four times, I think, possibly the most covered actor on the pod. Okay, because we did Working Girl, Working Girl, Ghostbusters. Oh wow, yeah. Oh, I forgot. And about that. Network. No, it's Faye Dunaway. No, no, Faye Dunaway. Sorry, they look very. But three, okay, but, thrice. But three, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's a she's a movies versus capitalism all star right now. Yeah, <laughs> and it's sure. interesting because Alien is the first one, and I was just thinking about those roles that she plays. She slowly becomes more like. Does Working Girl come before Ghostbusters? No, Working Girl is like 89. It's like late 80s. So she did. Yeah. So Ghostbusters, it's because here she's so radical and going for it. Ghostbusters, she's like, again, interfacing with extraterrestrial thing beings and but is a little bit more, you know, the sex politics of that movie is not great. We covered it on the pod. And then by the time she gets to Working Girl, she is the full on corporate evil boss, like the opposite of Ripley. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's something I, I wanted to talk about, the the sex politics. Um, I, I found it super interesting. As I mentioned, like two years before Star Wars comes out and the lead female there is quite literally a damsel in distress, right? Princess Leia, she needs to be rescued. She's, uh, if I'm remembering the first movie correct, kind of helpless, right? Like classic sort of stereotype. And then in this movie, I mean, Ripley is one of the, sci-fi like badass queens right even they made four more movies starring her she's in a bunch of like video games they really tried to recreate this character in in avatar she's very like 
sci-fi heavy and it almost looks like Ellen Ripley is brought into that into that universe. And one of the things that I thought was super interesting was originally she was written as a male character. And then when Ridley Scott was brought on board, he read the script and then was like, why don't we make this character a female? And really kind of upped the sex politics, I would say. They also have this, Dan O'Bannon talks a lot about how he really wanted to disturb male viewers because he had read a lot about how like males of the time weren't scared by, by a lot of stuff. And so what he did was he wanted to make a female the lead and then also have the alien, and to use his words, reproduce through homosexual oral rape because he thought the process of like the face hugger and being impregnated via I guess having an egg shoved down your mouth or something like that would really like make a lot of guys uncomfortable in the 70s and so watching it with that this was the first time I watched the movie with that knowledge and I was like oh yeah like Ripley is like really stand out for her time um, and pretty groundbreaking in my opinion. That's so fascinating because one of the things that really stood out to me where I was like, I think that's a hint that this isn't accidental. Like they are making a point about toxic masculinity is when Ripley gets shoved, like really violently shoved by Ash, who has been a misogynistic prick up until this point. And then it's like, oh, you're a fucking robot misogynistic prick. And he shoves her down. And the corner which he shoves her down, and it's a close-up. So it's like, you're like, this is intentional. This isn't just, like, the set being realistic, getting in the background. There's pornography behind Ash. And it's extremely violent. And so that was, like, to me, this was, like, this is clearly um, intentional and says a lot about the dehumanization of toxic masculinity. So it's interesting to hear you say there was clearly intention in the filmmaking there. Yeah, and I, I, I believe Ash tries to kill her by, like, shoving a magazine down her mouth or yes. I, I oh, think yeah, yeah. and yeah, I remember it, watching that and <laughs> if it's funny because I was watching that and then I just noticed the criminal amount of pornography behind her yeah. and I was like oh wow that's that's startling I never I never put two and two together there until right now I mean it was such a violent moment in any other scenario it could be a pornographic scene particularly pro- also thinking about the 70s and like that where pornography was as an industry at that moment but it's like deeply yeah it's a very pornographic violent sexual as you brought Mm. up like the throat stuff way to attack someone it's so interesting that uh joe you drew that comparison to princess leia because you're completely right but also in my research uh this movie would not have gotten made had it not been for the success of star wars like Mm. dan o'bannon was trying to sell this screenplay couldn't get it or, or, or was trying to get the, the film greenlit, couldn't do it. And then Star Wars becomes, you know, 77, one of the biggest box office hits in history up until that point. Mm. And that's when the studios responding to the market were like, oh, I guess people want to go to space. Let's uh, where who's got this? Who's got the good space scripts? Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. And then, you know, Ripley becoming in a lot of ways, like the inverse of Princess Leia and being like this groundbreaking female action protagonist. Although, you know, as as strong as some of those sex politics are, uh, you know, they still needed to put her in the most useless underpants of all time for her final battle sequence, <laughs> which I was okay. <laughs> which I was not. I was like, oh, of course, of course, this fucking shot is in here where <laughs> it's like right before she fights the alien and did she like she's gonna go to sleep <laughs> for the long sleep and she like just strips down to her to a little tank top and underpants, but they're like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, these are useless underpants. They cover nothing. Useless. They're so useless. <laughs> 
But I don't know. Yeah, no, I felt that way. And then I don't know. I was also like, but she's all alone. Like, what do I wear when I'm sure I get butt naked when I'm all alone? I'm not disputing. I'm sure some exec was like, let's get this girl in the tidy whiteies. (laughs) I felt that was insane because if I'm remembering correctly, she undresses, walks around the spaceship in her underwear. And then when she discovers the alien, her first move is to get back into clothes so she can like get back into the spacesuit. And I was like, okay, so they just undressed her for no plot point whatsoever. Just get a couple like scandalous shots, you know, make the exact happy. She looked good. She looks good. Yeah, no one's disputing that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and then she gets right back into clothes, and they're like, "Okay, we got the we got the sex scene. Let's let's get back to the plot here. Uh, She Mm -hmm. needs to be uh, in a flight suit so she can blast this thing out the airlock." The last thing I wanted to hit before we go to the awards, and we've talked about it a little bit, but I was really struck, and maybe it's because we're watching this in a 2023 context, but I was really struck by, you know, Ash as essentially the AI. You know, the artificial intelligence. He is an android. To me, I was reading him as like the the soulless core of the corporation that runs this ship. Like he was he was representative of sort of that amorality that we were talking about. How like if you remove any sort of morals or ethics from the profit motive, you're left with this just sort of robotic need to maximize profit at all costs. And it's devoid of sort of any human compassion or empathy. You know, there's a lot of reporting happening right now about how health insurance companies are using AI to essentially do claims adjustments and be case managers. And no, fucking for real. And determine, (sighs) determine whether or not people should be granted coverage, determine how long people's uh, you know, rehab services should be in effect for. And, you know, there are, you know, human case managers who are speaking out and they're like, like, this is like, I like I didn't get into healthcare to, to, for a robot to tell me that I should, you know, tell an 80 year old that they have to leave the rehab facility, even though they can't walk yet. So watching this in this time, I was like, damn, this is, if AI is, is used in the way that it currently is being used, which is to serve profit above all things like this is these are the kinds of scenarios that we were we will find ourselves in and are already finding ourselves in so yeah it's just i don't i don't have anything more than that other than it's fucked and <laughs> i hate it yeah, yeah. i I'm, I'm so glad you brought up ash he's he's one of the more fascinating characters in my opinion and you know talking about this time and the science fiction in this time correct me if i'm wrong but i can't recall any any robot from star wars or anything along this time where they're explicitly evil, right? I feel like the robots in a lot of 70s science fiction are more or less happy-go-lucky, C-3PO type stuff. And then this one is, he's entirely deceptive, he's evil, his only goal is, he's essentially the villain of the movie, right? I think that's a really interesting frame is like, as we talked about, the alien is nature, it's just doing its thing, but Ash, the corporation, is the villain. They are choosing to do bad things. And in sort of the the background research for this, I found something that was very interesting was O'Bannon's original script did not include Ash. And then when he sold the script, the studio brought on two writers. And in O'Bannon's opinion, what they were trying to do via the studio was write him off and so that they could strip writing credit away from him and pull him away from the residuals. Shout out Mm. to the Writers Guild of America because they eventually came in and litigated that it was O'Bannon who deserved credit. So support the WGA. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so 
to tie that back, Ash was what came out of O'Bannon working with these two different studio writers. And I really view Ash as sort of a representation mm -hmm. of what I would call like the middle managers, right? The floor managers, the foremen who look, sound, and act like the workers, but really act on behalf of the interest of capital. They may, you know, bunk next to the people in their hypersleep chambers or something like that. <laughs> but at the end of the day, they have one goal and their goal is to protect the company. What really kind of stood out to me on this is I think the scene where they go down to the planet, um, the whole crew is like fighting over these, or uh, not fighting over, like venturing over these like rocks. And there's this, the sound is amazing. It sounds like they're in a windstorm. And then it cuts back to Ash and he's like laying back in a chair, like looking out the window, like watching them. It's perfectly silent. And then it goes back and forth between them. And what came to my mind was sort of the idea of like a factory overseer looking down from his office at people mm. working on like a noisy factory floor. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, and I thought that like, they, if you watch it, they go back and forth between Ash and them like three or four times. And it, the way they kind of juxtapose the sound is like, oh, they're trying to really send a message here and let us know that, that these two people are not on the same same plane, even though they appear that way. So that's how I kind of interpret Ash. But I think the, the AI stuff is, you know, O'Bannon, Ripley, they, they called it like 40 years before everyone else that, that AI was, uh, was going to be a threat and replace all the workers. So more props to them. Yeah. Kind of similar to Hal in 2001 a little bit as well. That's the only other example. Yeah, where I was like, are there any other evil ones? I'm like, oh, yeah, the, the most evil one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. I totally forgot about the, the ultimate robotic villain. It would be interesting. It's interesting that, that it is makes such an interesting character as well <laughs> given that it is i mean just to the point of ai being so the ability to mimic the complexity of like a human being because that is played fully complex and yet when you discover that ash is an android there wasn't like a it all made sense it didn't but i was like wow you got me i knew you were evil i didn't like you but you got me but there's still yeah it was still um yeah, there's just things if you're really going into the AI thing, you're like, but is the android cold? <laughs> Human responses or just like the the biomimicry, like the ability to mimic biology? Yeah. Did they program to be program him to be a weirdo or was that just like his own choice? Like Frank's cat is peering through the screen, which I feel like is a sign. We just like we can't close without talking about Jones and the choice. I mean, those were there was a there's a close up. On great segue, on Jones in um, I don't remember when in the movie it come. Oh, when Jones watches someone die from the alien, or like watches the alien. It's like after Jones watches one of the characters die, and it's a close up on this cat. And I was like, that is one of the best close ups on an animal I've ever seen on screen. <laughs> <laughs> that is. What was it that did it? I mean, just the way the light hits. I mean, it's just like a phenomenal shot it's just so it, the the cinematography is amazing it's also just resting there and i think the whole point is just the cat ties us back to the connection to nature the connection to the fact that like these are organic matter that that steal and profit and that capitalism is not actually connected to our inherent human nature which is why i think the cat is so important that Ripley connects Ripley, sort of grounds Ripley, connects us back to what's important and what matters. Because it would also be easy for Ripley to sort of give up and go off. And Jones ties her to a need to kind of remain. 
That's super interesting. You know, I, I, I guess I'm just thinking, I didn't realize this at the time, but when you started talking about that, like now I'm thinking like there are two animals in the movie, right? There's the alien and there's the cat. And when you view them in that way, there's a real dichotomy there of, you know, the alien never tries to kill the cat, which I feel like mm. is different from most sort of monster movie. A lot of monster movies, I feel like the big sign that something's going on is like all the cats or neighborhood dogs or something like that get killed by a vampire, a monster, yeah, whatever yeah. it may be. But the alien never tries to kill the cat. And as I'm sitting here thinking about it, I'm realizing, you know, the humans made a choice to go down into the planet and kind of mess with the alien, right? And now they're forced to suffer humans, of course, being, you know, the species and putting aside the distinctions between capital and workers for a second. The cat never fucked with the alien and the alien really kind of leaves it alone. Mm. This is getting out there, but in, I believe it's actually the third alien movie, the alien becomes a dog. So I guess if we're talking about like the rules of alien science, uh, <laughs> it can kill the cat, but it, it doesn't. And I think that's kind of a, a purposeful choice hearing you talk, Riv. Now I'm kind of realizing it that, you know, the the director O'Bannon and, and Riley are, are saying like, hey, we have two options with nature. We can either mess with it and try and exploit it and it'll kill us in a horrible way, or we can coexist with it as Ripley does with the cat and we'll be a lot better. I love that. My cat agrees. <laughs> All right. Well, Joe, this is the part of the episode where we hand out awards for this movie. We've got three of them. The first award is best politics goes to the character with the best politics in the film. Ooh, I'm going with Harper, who is the engineer. Um, as we talked about, I think he, you know, gets what's going on with the corporation from the get go. My favorite shot of him in the movie is when he's arguing with Ripley about his pay. And then it's a very loud room. I think there's like steam shooting on them or something. And then Ripley turns and walks away and he turns off the steam. Just being like he's using kind of his his work environment to to better his cause and in his interests. I think he's asking for a full share of the of the uh, haul that they, they're getting on, on the Nostromo. Um, and that to me was one hysterical and two, also, like, <laughs> what workers should be doing, right? Maybe withhold your labor or a little slowdown every once in a while just to remind people who actually who actually is doing the work and creating the profit that everyone else gets to keep. Did you mean, you said, did you say Harper or did you mean Parker? Oh, I'm sorry, Parker. I did That's say okay. Harper. No, I was just yeah. making sure. <laughs> then, yes, I'm on the same page. I think it absolutely goes to Parker. Yeah, my vote was also going to be for Parker. I'm also just such a big Yafet Kodo fan. What else has I, yeah, I recognized Yafit Coach, but like, where where else would I know? He's in uh, Midnight Run with De Niro and uh, Charles Grodin. And then what's the other big one? Yeah, so good. It was also so nice to see like such freaking solid acting in a, like a big, I, I just feel like that's what, that's what goes first in like quote unquote blockbuster Mm -hmm. big budget sci-fi superhero movies now. Oh, he's also like, in The Running Man, which yeah. is another incredible movie that we could talk about on this podcast. So yeah, Parker. All right, our next award is Worst Politics. Goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. Ooh, um, I'm torn here. On one hand, I want to say Ash just because he is, you know, the villain of the movie. But I actually think I want to give it to Dallas and yep. the reason why is because Dallas is, he's kind of the person who, you know, he's like a middle manager in the movie, right? He's the captain of the ship. 
and everyone is talking to him about their pay and how they don't want to go fight an alien and stuff like that. And he's just kind of like, you know, it is what it is. You'll get what you're contracted for. This clause is in your contract. You have to do it. And in my mind, those are kind of the people who uh, stymie change the most in our system of the people who are like, hey, let's just not change anything, right? Like you, you go fight the alien. I'll stay here. They'll get their profits. Um, in my mind, that's kind of the worst yeah. politics, I would say. Yeah, I I also completely agree, and I'm gonna get like I I have uh, I'm gonna give Ash a pass here because he is a robot, uh, <laughs> whereas Dallas is a human man, and so like he's I, in my mind he is more responsible for his own politics, whereas Ash you know that's his programming. So, so yeah, I'd say that Dallas works politics for sure. Yeah, across the board, it's unanimous. Yeah, wow, three out of three. <laughs> This might be the most unanimous voting on awards we've ever done here. And then this will be interesting. Our last award is Best Supporting Character slash Spinoff. So it goes to your favorite supporting character and maybe a pitch for a spinoff that you would want to see them in. I would love to see something that kind of details more of planet Earth during this time period. And I think the best way to do that would be either Parker or Brett. Um, how did they end up on this spaceship, right? How did they end up in a situation in which their only job was, I think, as you mentioned, Frank, you have to go to sleep for like five years, wake up, move some minerals onto the ship, turn around and go back to sleep, right? Like, what is Earth looking like at this time when these corporations are so powerful that they're the ones exploring space instead of um, a government or some sort of political body? And I would love to see like how a working class person who is probably came up through like blue collar work like what did their life look like in this environment so i would vote for either parker or brett love that that's a great answer i was the only other variation i had is like i would like to see the inner workings of the wayland yatani corporation and Mm -hmm. we kind of get this in the in the sequel movies i know like aliens the sequel the paul riser character is like I believe is a human in that one. I don't think he's an android, but he's like he is he's like an executive from Wayland Yatani. So we get a little bit more of that, but yeah, I'd be curious about is this is this the only corporation left on planet Earth? Is it like the la- is it like the monopoly? Does is you know, is are we living essentially on Wayland Yatani planet now and they've just supplanted the state and all other institutions? Um and I think we'll probably see some sort of like either, you know, dystopian sci-fi or satire of some point in the future that's and there's probably books like this that are just like what if it what would it be like if there's just one corporation just one mm-hmm. for for all mankind it's funny you mentioned that frank and not to i know we're wrapping up and not to geek out too hard but the cool thing about alien and, and predator and this universe that they kind of made is there's a ton of like comic books and video games and stuff and a lot of them like detail that and to answer your question like yeah Ooh. the wayland yutani corporation kind of captures planet earth and there's like a I guess kind of a representation of the Soviet Union, like a, a holdout socialist type of style government, but eventually it too gets gets captured by the corporation. So if any listeners are looking for like really, really more in this universe that details the uh, the capitalist politics, um, yeah, I can't recommend sort of the the novels and stuff enough. They they go down that rabbit hole. The Alien franchise has some of the best politics of any film franchise. We didn't even talk about aliens, like the real ones. Oh, like, <laughs> like the real ones like in our did world? <laughs> we didn't even like get to that whole plot point. Yeah. But let's, oh, um, let's, this has been such a great conversation. But before we end it, Joe, we would just like to know from you, 
you know, you talked about your blog and all of the work that you do. Is there anything beyond that that you do in your daily life to practice your values, your anti-capitalist values or whatever, whatever values those might be, even with all their complexities and contradictions? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so in addition to the writing that I, that I kind of do, um, I want to mention two things. The first is, um, so I think I mentioned I'm in Denver. So if you're in Denver, me and my local DSA chapter are starting um, DWOC, which is an offshoot of the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. And so what we do is we're not affiliated with any union. It's totally free. If you are looking to organize your workplace or not even unionize, just sort of have some sort of collective bargaining um, or collective action. Um, EWOC is a great resource to learn how to do that. There's tons of professional union organizers who volunteer their time and will help you do that. So we're starting one in Denver. So if you are in the Denver area or anywhere really in the Rocky Mountain region and work sucks, um, shoot me a message on, on social media, something like that, and um, we'll see if uh, we can help you out. And then the more like personal thing I try and do is I kind of call them like decommodified hours of, you know, so much of our time in life is just spent either creating value or consuming value. It's very hard to just sort of exist outside of capitalism. Mm. And so I like to find some time every week to just sort of relax. And whether that's like read a library book, I don't know, watch some some videos on YouTube or a podcast such as your own, like something where I'm just sort of existing as a human being outside of the socioeconomic system that we all live in. And I, I find that's kind of great for my mental health. I'm not always constantly like, all right, I've got to be X productive or I spent X much money. It's it's kind of cool just to just to live. And I, I really suggest everyone do it. That's beautiful. Yeah. And decommodified hours is a great, that's a great term for that. Yeah. Um, you should trademark that and then yeah. and trademark that. <laughs> and then make and, money and, off and, of it. And then commodify yeah. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll, I'll have to come up with a different, a different reason or a different <laughs> way to practice my anti-capitalist values because <laughs> I've monetized the, uh, the only part of our lives that is, that is unmonetized. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we'll be sure to link to your socials where people can reach out to you if they want to. And your blog. And your blog. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. This was so much fun. Yeah, this was a great, great conversation. Yeah, thanks, guys. I'm, uh, I had a blast. Um, I'm so happy I could just sort of find someone who was interested in listening to my ramblings <laughs> about science fiction. Um, yeah, it's a great time. Thank yeah, you. we'll have you back on for Aliens. Oh, hell yeah. This is just the beginning. Thank you all so much for listening and make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you want to support the show and get access to our premium episodes, you can go to mvcpod.com to find all of that info. For next week's movie, we'll be watching the independent film Blow Up My Life and be speaking with the film's writers and directors, Abby Horton and Ryan Dickey. Very excited. This is the first time we get to talk to a couple of filmmakers about an independent film that they did everything to create, produce, write, direct, and distribute. Um, And if you want to watch their film before next week, you can find it at blowupmylife.com. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.